Why you join me here? So uh, Aaron and Jackie had a baby. <laughs> Nehemiah, ne- Nehemiah, is it Nehemiah Aaron? Yep, A-A-Ron. Ne- A-A-Ron, a- okay, okay. <laughs> Nehemiah Aaron, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, their plan was to drive all the way down to the springs to have the baby. And uh, it never seemed like a good plan to me. But how far did you make it? Sky Ridge. <laughs> the time between arrival and delivery was 15 minutes. 15, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, thank God for Sky Ridge. And, uh, and Jackie's doing great. She's doing great. Nehemiah's yeah, great. Nehemiah's doing good. Yeah, well, good. excitement at our home. Well, we're happy for you guys. Love you guys. Yeah, that was awesome. Awesome, awesome. Good news. Um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. We're going to read this passage that we read last week and have been reading uh, because we're going to continue to reflect on it together, and hopefully God will speak to us. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, follow along on the screen. So Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. You notice in your Bible, if you've got a Bible, the heading of this section is the parable of the lost son. Uh, terrible title of this section because it's not really a parable of the lost son. It's a parable about the two sons. And uh, you, you don't understand our headings in the Bible are not inspired by God. They were put there by uh, individuals who thought it would be helpful to us. In this case, it's not helpful. It actually misdirects us. But anyway, I digress. Okay, we'll start over again. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and therefore squandered his wealth in wild living. I said, therefore, there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when your son, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, 
and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the word of God. Pray with me. Father, guide our reflections on this passage. Uh, Help us to understand it in greater detail and depth, and may that understanding change us, God. May it call us into places that you would have us dwell, places where our hearts and our actions are different. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, for a couple of weeks now, we've been looking at this passage, Luke 15. Uh, There are three stories that Jesus tells here. Last Sunday, we began talking about uh, this part of the story, the prodigal son in particular. And we've seen that the purpose of these stories was to challenge some of the prevailing religious ideas of that day. Jesus' listeners had wrong ideas about God, wrong ideas about themselves, wrong ideas about how a person goes about relating to God. And I've been saying that they, the tax gatherers and the sinners and the Pharisees, uh, they operated off of a moralistic paradigm. That's what I've been arguing. And so Jesus' story, the story of the two very different brothers, one very immoral and the other one uh, very moral, illustrates the truth that both operate off the same moralistic model. Uh, Both the prodigal son and the elder brother think that the problem in the world's not me, it's you. You know, it's not me, it's those people out there, the people not like me. And we've seen too that both of these sons reject their father. One by leaving home and living immorally, the prodigal, and the other by staying home and following the rules. That's the elder brother. Neither son really understood their father, nor did they have a relationship with him. And that, I've been saying, that right there is the root of their sin problem. That's really what sin is. Uh, It's not having a relationship with God, not wanting a relationship with God. And that was why both of these sons were lost. Both of them were alienated from the father. And then Jesus shocks his listeners in this story with a remarkable twist to it. The immoral prodigal son, surprisingly, shockingly, comes home. He repents. He sees his need of the father. He sees his own sin and to some extent understands how deeply he's transgressed the relationship with his father. And verse 17 tells us this happens when he comes to his senses. But the elder brother, the moral one, apparently never gets to that same place. So despite his morality, despite his obedience, despite the elder brother's good living, he is even more alienated from his father than his younger, immoral, rebellious brother. Now, what's so absolutely refreshing about Jesus' story is that it introduces us to a really a whole new understanding of the Father, one that is absolutely unique to Jesus, one that you'll not hear anywhere else, not from any other religious teacher, not from any other time in history. As I just said, the prodigal son decides to come home. He comes to his senses, but even before that, And this is important. Even before he comes to his senses, Jesus makes it clear, very clear, crystal clear, that the father, in other words, God, loved his son before the son ever began to repent. Uh, We read there in verse 20, he says, but while he was still a long way off, this is the son coming home, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and, and threw his arms around him and kissed him. 
So this son, you see, experiences the love of the father before he ever gets to start his speech. The father sees him at a great distance, comes running, and the father embraces him and kisses him before the son can even open his mouth. This is very significant, actually. <clears throat> Some have argued uh, that, this, that this story, the story of the two sons, is a very different story than the story of the shepherd going after the sheep or the, the woman who's looking for the lost coin. They say that in those stories, the shepherd goes searching, right? Takes the initiative, and the woman looks for her coin, takes the initiative. Uh, and, uh, but in this story, the story of the two sons, they argue that especially with the prodigal, first, um, they, 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 before the father takes the initiative, the prodigal has to return and has to repent. And I would just say that that actually gets the whole story quite backwards. That misses a couple of very, very significant points we don't want to miss. A little cultural context will help us here. Ordinarily, any father in this Middle Eastern culture that we're talking about, that Jesus lived in, listening to a story like Jesus' story, they would be outraged at the behavior of this younger son. I mean, outraged. Uh, hearing a son say to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. You see, ordinarily, any Middle Eastern father would handle that kind of disrespect uh, very harshly. Um, maybe slap the son or uh, maybe have him publicly beaten, uh, maybe throw him out without a penny, destitute, disown him. Because you see, the younger son really had no formal claim to the estate whatsoever. Uh, if a father gave a younger son any inheritance at all, the father was simply being loving. The father was simply being gracious. He was being kind. And often fathers of, of great wealth would give the younger son or sons some inheritance. But this son presumptuously, arrogantly makes a request that suggests he feels very entitled. He goes to his father and says, you know, give me my share of the estate. Well, technically he had no share. Technically it all belonged to the father and subsequently to the elder brother. The father could have sent this son away destitute, penniless, disowned from the family because of the dishonor he was bringing on the family with this kind of behavior. And who knows where that would have left or uh, where that would have led. Probably the, the younger son would have been even more angry at his father, understanding the heart of his father even less. But in Jesus' story, the father reacts with incredible patience. The father reacts with unbelievable gentleness and, and mercy. In fact, he reacts by saying, okay, son, here's your share of the estate. And he gives his son what the son thinks he needs to be happy. You know, the son's been thinking, if I could just get my hands on my portion of the estate, you know, that entitlement sense that he has, uh, my life would be so much better. It'd be so uh, much more fun, so much more interesting. So the father gives the son what he thinks he needs to be happy. And by doing this, he lets his son learn. He lets his son grow. He lets his son continue in this process. And the point that we don't want to miss is that this father is already loving his son. This father is already being merciful right from the outset of this story, even before the son ever leaves. And we see this love and this mercy again in the story uh, in the father's embrace. When the son finally comes back, the father embraces him. The father kisses him before the speech that his uh, son has planned to make. And so here's a father who doesn't stand on the front porch, which you might expect, you know, arms folded, 
kind of indignant, waiting for the sun to grovel just a little bit. It's about time you came home and came to your senses, son. But the father in Jesus' story doesn't have that response. The father in Jesus' story, rather uh, without dignity or, or sheds his dignity, jumps off the porch, probably hikes up his robes, runs to the father who's a long, or runs to his son who's a long way off, we're told. Don't know how far that is. We don't know what the horizon was like there. Half a mile, mile, I don't know. But he runs to his son. And the second he gets to him, he doesn't wait for speeches. He embraces him. And he kisses him. Uh, the son hasn't said a single word yet. You know, a painting that uh, I have in my office and love is the Rembrandt's painting of uh, the return of the prodigal. It's, um, it's a beautiful picture of this whole parable. Uh, one I love, one I will sometimes uh, take time to just look at and reflect on. You know, I have to imagine that the, the son, uh, when he comes home, is somewhat shocked by the response of his father. He's been traveling for some, we would assume, days, some period of time. He had gone to a foreign land. Uh, he's been thinking, no doubt, about what he's going to say to his father. We know that he was thinking about that, preparing his speech, probably even worrying about how the whole thing was going to go when he finally got there. You know, what's his dad's response going to be? Uh, wondering if his dad maybe would even listen. I mean, after all the insults that he had hurled at his father after the public humiliation he's brought upon his father and his family because as we can all imagine the whole town right you know towns oftentimes were built around estates wealthy estates people from the village would be employed of course you know at that estate and and this whole this whole family who owns this estate has been the i assume the subject of discussion in that town can you picture this and i imagine everybody had an opinion about what the father should have done or shouldn't have done how he handled it well, how he handled it badly. Uh, but the news is out about this younger son having taken off. And I imagine the son, as he heads home, is nervous. But then his father reacts this way, with an embrace and with a kiss. Do you think that made making his speech and giving his repentance back to the father easier or harder? Uh, my guess is easier, you know. I mean, it's usually easier to own your own sin and ask someone for forgiveness and say you're sorry when the person that you're talking to has already responded with this kind of love and this kind of compassion. So I'm, I'm guessing here that the father has actually smoothed the way and made it easier for a son. It's interesting to me, too, that in Jesus' story, the father has responded right from the beginning in this story to the very end with nothing but patience and mercy and love and compassion, actually for both of the sons, both of them. But both of them have missed it. They, they've completely missed it. It never dawned on the prodigal that his dad was awfully gracious to give him an inheritance in the first place, let alone let him take it away and squander it. Never dawned on him. It also never dawned on the elder brother that everything the father had was his. You know, if he had asked for a lamb to slaughter, to have a little party. Do you think his father would have given that to him? I'm sure he would have. I'm sure the father would have said, you know, son, everything I've got is yours. Have a good party, you know. But both of these sons completely misunderstood the heart of their father. And this is why Jesus tells this story. 
It's what he wants us to get as well. He wants us to understand the heart of the Father. Here in this story, the love of the Father was not caused by the Son's repentance. Other way around. The Son's repentance was ultimately caused by the love of the Father. You see, the love of God that's pictured here, the welcome home of the Father, didn't start when the Son came home. It started way back when the Son was insulting the Father. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Such presumption, such arrogance. And now we see that the father embraces that arrogant son, not because he's beautiful. He is, in fact, quite ugly. I think Rembrandt, boy, he captures this in the painting. If you've ever looked up close at the painting, I probably can't see it from there on the screen, but uh, the son's not looking too good. His clothes are ragged. His sandals are worn out. He's dusty. He's dirty. He's just come back from a famine where he couldn't find food. And my guess is the only food he found on the journey home was whatever food people would give him because he looked like a beggar. He's been feeding pigs. He's been walking for days. He's exhausted. But the father doesn't say, oh, my gosh, son, you are a mess. We need to get you cleaned up. There's none of that. The truth is the father's love completely overwhelms the ugliness of the son. This is kind of beauty embracing the beast. You know, uh, some um, art aficionados uh, like myself uh, no, have, have noticed in Rembrandt's painting the two hands of the father on the shoulders of his son. Uh, the hand that you see on the right there is a very manly, beefy-looking hand. And they've noticed the difference between that hand and the other hand, which is almost womanly. And some speculate, we don't know this, but some speculate that because Rembrandt could paint a hand any way he wanted to paint a hand, but he deliberately made them you know, fatherly and motherly to reflect the full love of the father. There's that motherly tenderness, tenderness and compassion. There's that manly embrace. That they're both there in the embrace of this, uh, this father. Uh, uh, did you notice when we read the story that, you know, when the son starts his speech, the father doesn't let him finish? Do you notice that? The son never gets to make his request to be a hired hand or a servant. The father's reckless love, frankly, just overwhelms him, just like that embrace that you see. I mean, he's just, he's just hugging him close. Son, you haven't understood how much you matter to me. You never have. Bring him a robe. Bring him a ring. Get him some sandals. Kill the fattened calf. And we need to see here that what the prodigal son needed was not just a repentant heart. What he needed was a father just like this. That's what he needed. And understand, too, this son's repentance wasn't perfect. <laughs> just like yours and mine never is. Our repentance is never perfect. I bet when this son was preparing his speech on the long march home, he was thinking the whole way, you know, maybe there was some way he could say the right thing that would merit his father's acceptance, right? That would get him back in good graces, with his father, you know, that, that would enable him to be a hired hand if necessary until he could prove himself, which just goes to show us that he still didn't really get the depth of the goodness and the graciousness of his father. Friends, this is a problem that we all have all the time. 
You see, grace is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It's giving good things to people who just plain don't deserve it. They're unworthy. Uh, And you know who has a problem with that kind of grace? We do. (laughs) We all do. All people do. Grace bothers people when it's being shown to anyone other than themselves. It just does. And it's why Jesus would tell disturbing kinds of stories like this. He told another story one time. And this is a story that over the years as I've read it and read it, it always bothers me. I have to be honest. It always bothers me. It's in Matthew chapter 20. It's the story of the landowner. You're familiar with it. This landowner gets up early in the morning and goes to the marketplace to hire some people to come help harvest his crops. And um, he found some. He offered to pay them one denarius for the day's labor. That was the going rate. Everybody was happy to get it. So he hires them at 6 a.m. But he goes back to the marketplace to hire more at 9 a.m. And again at noon. And then again at 3 p.m. And then again at five, just an hour before, you know, closing time, so to speak. And when it comes closing time, he um, gathers the servants that he's hired together and he, he pays first the ones hired at five, just an hour earlier. And he gives them a whole denarius. <laughs> wow, a whole day's wage for an hour's worth of work. And then he gives the three uh, o'clock hires their denarius and the 12 o'clock hires their denarius, and then he gives the nine o'clock hires their denarius, and then he gets the early hires, he gets to them, and he gives them their denarius as well. It's a whole day's wage. But the early morning hires, if you read the story, they're quite upset. They feel that they are entitled to more, you see. And Jesus answers one of them. He says, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last, pause right there, the man who was hired last, the five o'clock hire, that's the one who expects next to nothing. That's the one who knows they are not worthy to be given a denarius. They're clear about that. But Jesus says, I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right? You see, that right there, friends, is unmerited favor. That is grace. Jesus says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, disturbingly, If you go to the very beginning of this story, Jesus starts this story by saying this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. That's how he starts this story. The kingdom of heaven is like this. In other words, people are going to get things they don't deserve in my kingdom. And what is more, people who think they deserve something might not get it. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. And we hear something like that. I hear something like that, and I want to go, whoa, wait a minute. That feels unfair. That doesn't seem right. 
that bothers me, especially as it relates to you, not so much as it relates to me. You see, the point is, is too, that, that it is inbred in us, in our sin nature, to think and to act with a moralistic religious paradigm, a moralistic religious model. Jesus wants us, however, <laughs> to understand that no one is worthy of anything in the kingdom of Jesus. No one is good enough. No one is obedient enough. No one deserves a thing. No one is entitled to anything. We all, in fact, avoid God. We all, in fact, leave home. We all, in fact, run from relationship with God. Even the early morning hires. Even the early morning hires. I wonder if you've ever found yourself running from God. We all do this, don't we, from time to time. And for whatever reason, when you decide to come back, uh, you struggle to believe that God will be gracious. You know, you, you, the gospel and, and grace just seem too good to be true, really. And you want to operate off that, that moralistic religious model, right? And so we say things to ourselves like, well, you know what? I'm going to clean myself up first. I will do everything I can to make myself as acceptable as possible to God. I'll work really hard as a hired hand, right, if need be. I'll do better. And then maybe my father will accept me, and then maybe he'll hear my request, and then maybe I'll deserve my father's grace just a little bit. You get right how messed up that thinking is. That's so messed up. I have a hunch that the prodigal's repentance was as messed up as yours and mine usually is. It was confused. It was full of misconceptions and misunderstanding about the heart of the Father. It showed that he didn't get how loving and how good and how gracious his Father was. But guess what? It doesn't matter. Because the Father's love for him wasn't based on his even understanding it. It wasn't based on his performance or his repentance or his perfection. It was based instead solely on the Father's perfection, the Father's goodness, the Father's grace. But here's the problem. It's a big one. There are no fathers like this. There are no gods like this. Not in any religion known to man. No religion in the world claims to have a God like this. You do understand, I hope, that all world religions operate moralistically, all of them. You know, I'm good, I just need to be a little better, get a little better, and then I'll reach nirvana if I'm a Buddhist, you know, if I can keep improving, and then I'll reincarnate into a higher and better life form if I'm a Hindu, or then Allah will accept me if I happen to be a Muslim, or then, you know, if I happen to be a, a, of Jewish persuasion, then Yahweh will accept me if, I, if I'm just an obedient son, an obedient daughter. That kind of thinking, you understand, is moralistic. It tends to seep into every bit of our human thinking. And this was the game that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and, this, and so on were, were playing. And I've said it over and over, but that's why these folks were shocked. That, this is why they were astounded by this story. 
One, because Jesus was saying that both of these sons were lost and alienated from the father. Both the moral and the immoral brother needed to be found, in other words. And two, because Jesus described this father in such loving and gracious terms, the Pharisees were absolutely sure there are no fathers like this. There's no God like this. You see, in Jesus' story, when he has the father say, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. I imagine that at about that point in Jesus' story, as he was relating this, many of his listeners were thinking, okay, (laughs) there it is. Uh Okay, I see where you're coming from now. This father, this God, if you will, really is kind of soft on sin, but this explains it because you see, they knew that sins needed to be punished. They knew that sins needed to be atoned for. These were good Jews. They know this. That's part of their life and part of their theology. Our God is a God of holiness. Our God is a God of righteousness. Our God is a God of justice. He is not soft on sin. And the moralists who were listening to Jesus at about this point in the story, verse 24, they're thinking, you know, sin has a price. Come on. No wonder the sinners flock to this guy, to Jesus. He's telling them sin doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what you do. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. But let me tell you, when sinners come to our places of gathering, our synagogues, our temple, we let them know God does not approve. We let them know that they should repent of this bad, terrible behavior. We don't say, oh, God loves you. He'll forgive you. You know, we tell them you've got some work to do. There are some costly temple sacrifices that need to be made. There's a multitude of apologies that you must make. There's lots of bridges that you need to rebuild. Working as a hired servant is not a bad idea until you can prove yourself. And as far as they were concerned, you see, Jesus was offering cheap, costless, and therefore meaningless grace. But I got to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Again, there's a kind of a cultural backdrop here that would help us to appreciate the effect that this story had on its original listeners. It highlights an important contrast, one that would really not probably be understood until Jesus' earthly ministry was over when it was completed. You see, culturally in Jesus' story, someone does pay a price uh, for the prodigal son's sins. There's a cost associated with uh, his departure and his return. And it's the elder brother who incurs the cost. You may not have thought of this. Let me explain. You see, when the father welcomes the prodigal back, it's not free. Remember, the father has already given the younger son his inheritance. Maybe, who knows? Maybe as much as 40% of the estate. He's already gone and squandered all of that. And so now, who owned the new robe? Who owned the ring? Who owned the sandals? Who owned even the fattened calf? In verse 31, it tells us that when the elder brother is refusing to welcome his brother back, the father goes out to talk to him and starts, it actually says, to plead with him. And even while the son accuses his father of being a slave-driving, order-shouting taskmaster, the father says this to the elder brother. He says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And that was not just sentimentality. It was legally true. 
Everything left in the estate belonged now to the elder brother. It was the elder brothers. I'm assuming this is partly why the elder brother was so peeved, right? That the younger brother had come home. You see, the father says, bring him a robe. Well, understand, it's the elder brother's robe. Bring him a ring. Well, understand, it's the elder brother's ring. Yeah. But kill the fattened calf. Well, that fattened calf is technically the elder brother's fattened calf. There's no way for the younger brother to just walk back into the family without somebody paying a price. The father can't just say, oh, let bygones be bygones. Let's just forgive and forget. No, because you see, this is all happening, of course, at the elder brother's expense. And Jesus is showing us, I think, that there is an incredible cost for the younger brother to come home. And yet it's free to the younger brother. There's a reason that Jesus leaves out any mention, I think, of things like temple sacrifices or apologies that ought to be made or rebuilding trust. I think Jesus is looking ahead. I think he's pointing out that this poor prodigal has a very, very serious problem. You see, the only way back home, the only way back to the father's heart is at the expense of the elder brother. And unfortunately, this prodigal son has a stingy, selfish, condescending, condemning elder brother. He's in trouble. He's in a lot of trouble. But the good news of the gospel is for us prodigals, we don't have that kind of elder brother. You see, there's an elder brother. There's one who did obey the father completely and perfectly, start to finish, never disobeyed him who came to earth and loved the Father with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. And this elder brother earned everything. Earned the robe, earned the ring, earned the sandals, earned the fattened calf, everything that you would get if you lived a perfectly obedient life. But he didn't get that. Instead, he was stripped and beaten. And they cast lots for his robe. And he got no celebration, no fattened calf. He was given vinegar to drink. And he was nailed to a cross. You see, this elder brother, this Jesus, stands in stark contrast to the one here in Jesus' story. This painting that is up there now is another Rembrandt. It's called The Raising of the Cross. It's really uh, an interesting painting. Um, Rembrandt, when he was young, was a prodigal. He was wealthy, he was popular, he loved the ladies, and he loved liquor, (laughs) wine, and he lived a profligate life. Um, He was a prodigal, and he knew that about himself. As he got older, it seems to be very clear, people who have written biographies and studied his life, that there was a turning point in Rembrandt's life where he came to appreciate some of the things that he was painting, grace, the mercy of his God. When he painted this painting, there's a weird character. He's kind of in the the light. You know, you can see him. You see his cap, it's blue. You know, you look at that, you say, well, who's this character? And you know where I'm going with this. You know, that's Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted himself into the painting of raising Jesus up and crucifying him. He had come 
to understand that he, just like everyone else, had put Jesus on the cross. And he had come to appreciate that Jesus willingly let them, let us. You know, in, uh, in this story, the elder brother Jesus understood that the only way for you and me to be clothed was for him to be stripped. The only way for you and me to get the ring, the robes, the sandals, the celebrated feast was for him to lose them. He had earned them, Jesus had, but he willingly gave them up so that you and I could get them, so that you and I could come home and be welcome. And that's what makes this story so shocking. You see, Jesus wasn't preaching cheap grace. He was preaching grace at his expense. It was a price that only he could pay. And after he paid the price, he, he offers it freely to you and to me. And he offers that today. <laughs> He's never stopped offering it. He says, come home to prodigals. He says, I'll give you my own robe. I'll give you my own ring. I'll share everything that's mine with you. So come home. And in this story, he's even, he's even painting a picture of how excited God gets when we do come home. The fattened calf gets slaughtered. The table is set. The banquet is there. It's time for, for feasting. It's time for celebrating. It's time for dancing together. That's the picture that Jesus paints about how the Father feels when we come home. And just a, an observation here. You know, if you follow Jesus, but there's no joy in your life, there's no dancing, there's no celebration around how much he loves you and how he's forgiven you, then it's either because you are being like the prodigal and you're letting your own badness get in the way of that relationship with the father, or you're being like the elder brother and you are letting your goodness get in the way. And you're doing a great job of keeping the rules, but you have no real relationship with the Father. What you've done is created a religion with the Father that keeps him at a comfortable distance. And I would just say if there's no joy, if there's no dancing, if there's no celebration, then you must not get it. You must not get it. You must not really understand how much you are loved and how fully you are forgiven. And how freely and unfairly you can come home. You see, Jesus says to prodigals, come home. Know that you matter where you are. Uh, you know, another warning of this story is that uh, if you are the prodigal and you're off in a foreign land and you're putting some distance between you and the father, well, guess what? A famine is coming. A famine is coming. You will eventually find yourself hungry. You know, um, whatever it is that you pursue instead of God, I say this to all of us, whatever it is that we pursue instead of God it is going to leave us hungry at some point. 
It will only love you if. It will only satisfy you if. It will only fill you if. We talked about that if problem last Sunday. And so Jesus says, forget all of that. Just come home. No ifs. No ands, no buts. And so friends, whether you are a prodigal or a Pharisee, I would say, come home. There is a true elder brother that opens the way for us to come home. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we give thanks to you for this remarkable story that we keep diving into and things that we discover here. God, we